Grace and peace. Good morning. It's good to be with you this Lord's Day to open our scriptures together and to spend time in God's word together and also just to gather and worship with you. Um, Again, as Amy mentioned, my name is David Roth. I'm the director at Memorial Drive Ministries just down the road in Clarkston, Georgia. Um, If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, please do find me after the service. I'd love a chance to say hello. Um, Before we dive into our text this morning, um, I want to take just a moment of personal privilege to say thank you. Last November, I was here, uh, Emmanuel lifted up Memorial Drive Ministries as the partner of the month, and you guys responded uh, to the needs we brought forward to you just with overwhelming um, support. So we had, you may remember, we had asked for uh, diapers for resettled refugee families. Uh, You guys provided so, so many boxes of diapers that just flew off the shelves um, to families who are new to our city. So thank you. Um, We also were recruiting some volunteers for the after-school program that works with resettled refugee middle schoolers, and um, so many applications came in. Just uh, this past Tuesday, I was at the um, Mark class that Jenny has been teaching, and at the end, um, the gentleman I was sitting next to leaned over, and he said, my son and I have been volunteering every Thursday at Inspire, and it's been so life-giving for us. So um, thank you guys for for responding in that way. That in a world of war and violence um, and danger, There are concrete steps this congregation is taking to make the world a more hospitable place, to take a stand for the light. And um, I appreciate that. So thank you. Uh, So let's turn our attention to Mark chapter 1. We will start at the 29th verse. You'll remember the last few weeks we've been in Mark 1. Mark's point of this gospel is to introduce us to the person and work of Jesus, to reveal to us the identity of Jesus and to tell us good news about Jesus. Um, And so that's where we'll pick up in the 29th verse. And immediately they left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they told Jesus about her at once. He came and took her by the hand and raised her up. Then the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or possessed with demons, and the whole city was gathered around the door. And he cured many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Holy and loving God, you're the God of peace. You're the God of rescue. You're in the highest vault of heaven and you behold the deepest depths. The deepest depths of human experience. The depths of despair, pain, the abyss of illness, the pain of injustice, enslavement to the very real powers of evil in our world. You behold it all, and in your son Jesus Christ, you do more than see it. You come close to it. You have compassion over it. You start working liberation and healing in it. You take us by the hand and raise us up. You taste it yourself. You experience it firsthand. You share in it. In Jesus Christ, you come scandalously close to us to raise us up. So come now, we ask, proclaim in our midst the message you came to proclaim. We ask you to heal all that's sick in us. Deliver us from all evil. Reveal to us yourself in word and sacrament this morning. We ask you now to send your Holy Spirit among us to do the work in our hearts that you did among those you ministered to when your son walked this earth. All this we ask in his strong name. Amen. Um, So does anyone remember in the 90s, there was this contemporary Christian worship song, Here I Am to Worship? Here I Am to Worship. I see some nods. Um, Even if you were not a church growing up, this song was kind of all the rage. Um, If you do not know what we're talking about, 
Uh, that's probably okay. If you missed the contemporary Christian worship scene in the 90s, um, you may not be missing out on too, too much. But um, this song was a classic and uh, sung in churches almost every Sunday for a decade, I think. Um, and there was one line that I want to lift up for us this morning. Light of the world, you step down into darkness. Light of the world, you step down into darkness. And this, I think, captures exactly where we are in the liturgical calendar, in the liturgical season. We are in Epiphany. We've been in Epiphany. And Epiphany is light of the world. We think about the star of Bethlehem in Epiphany that led the Magi uh, to the newborn King Jesus. We think of Jesus as the light of the world. And we've been singing that in our communion liturgy each week. Jesus, the light of the world. A light to enlighten the nations and the dawning glory of the people Israel. Epiphany has been light of the world. But we're beginning to move towards Lent. Lent starts um, in less than two weeks. And when Lent starts, we're going to take a step down into the darkness. Light of the world, you step down into darkness. Um, and I can think of no better guide as we kind of turn the, start to turn the page from Epiphany towards Lent um, than Mark, than the Gospel of Mark in our text this morning. Um, because I think what the Gospel writer is doing is engaging us on three things that I want to lift up and explore together this morning. The reality of the darkness, the weight of evil, and the rescue of God. That's going to be kind of our steps for today. The reality of the darkness, the weight of evil, and the rescue of God. But first, we need to rehash what happened in today's uh, passage. This is Jesus confronting illness and demon possession. Jesus and the disciples enter the house of Simon and Andrew. This is Simon who Jesus will rename Peter. So this is Simon Peter. Um, Simon Peter's mother-in-law is sick with a fever and Jesus has not healed anyone yet in the gospel. So this is a new threat to human life. It's a new threat to human fellowship that Jesus is facing. And you're meant to ask yourself, what's gonna happen next? Um, now, when this text was written, humanity did not relate to fevers the way you and I relate to fevers. So just a few weeks ago, I was actually on my way here driving um, to a worship and prayer night here at the church. Um, and the babysitter called and said that my daughter, Anna, um, was running a fever. And I just wasn't that worried. <laughs> I just turned the car around, headed home. She might have to miss a day of school. My biggest worry was that like, I'm a delinquent dad that just left my feverish child with a babysitter. <laughs> like, right? It, I wasn't worried about her long-term health. Um, does anyone know the year? We have some MDs and some nurses and pharmacists in the room. The year penicillin was discovered. Anyone willing to shout it out? If you know. Uh, 1928, which is like yesterday in human history, the first anti-infection drug was discovered. And the time after penicillin is just categorically different than all the time that came before. So um, I don't know if you've ever seen someone who's going septic or like their body has an infection that it can't beat. But actually just a couple years ago, um, my dad got an infection in his back um, that was exceptionally gruesome, and he landed in the hospital, and it ended up being resistant to most all of the antibiotics being thrown at it. He was experiencing rigors, which are like these torturous, whole body shaking things as the body starts to go septic. Um, it, it, it's a, a crucible of agony to get a fever that you can't get over. Um, and I remember at 6 a.m., I got a call from my brother-in-law. Him and uh, my sister had already made it to the hospital, um, and he said, listen, it's getting serious. If this was my dad, I'd want to be in the car on the way here. So I scramble. My wife has to cover with the kids that day. Work stuff gets canceled. I'm on the car, in the car on the way to Charleston. Um, 
And thankfully, due to very strong antibiotics, he was able to recover after a long and kind of arduous hospital stay. Um, but what I want to really underline here is that a fever that can't be cured is a life-threatening ailment. It's an experience of being caught in the grips of something that's way more powerful than you. Uh, and it disrupts an entire family and community system. And this is what's happening to Simon's mother-in-law and her family and her community. She's unable to offer hospitality in her own home, um, which is devastating, especially for a first century Jewish woman. And this fever is working against life, against love, against health, and against hospitality. But then Jesus, it's kind of the turning point of this story. Then Jesus, Jesus happens. Rescue happens. Jesus takes her by the hand, which is a great detail for a gospel writer to include, and raises her up, restores her to life, restores her to health, restores her to status, restores her to dignity, and restores her to community. So then at sunset, as this word kind of spreads through the town, the whole city begins to gather at the door of the house. Another beautiful image from this text. And Jesus heals the sick and casts out the evil spirits. So Jesus is antidote and liberation for we who are caught in the grips of inimical powers. Demons and disease plague us, but Jesus is beginning the work of rescue. Fevers and demon possession are like this leading edge of death that is advancing into the world. And Jesus is the leading edge of life and hope to counteract that force. Okay, so that brings us to the reality of the darkness. This is Mark's worldview that Mark is both kind of assuming and depicting for us in the gospel. The reality of the darkness. Um, who has seen Stranger Things? Can I see a show of hands? I was warned the 11 o'clock wouldn't participate. Good, I see everybody raised their hand. All of you have seen Stranger Things, apparently. Um, Stranger Things, of course, is this Netflix drama, um, a science fiction horror drama about a small town, Hawkins, Indiana, where a group of teenagers discover and begin to do battle with the upside-down world, right? And the basic premise is that there is this upside-down world. It's a world of death and decay. Um, Demogorgons and shadow monsters also. Uh, And that world is breaking into the human world and taking over. And everything it touches turns to death. Every um, human relationship or place of fellowship and joy, it drags it down into that world of death and decay. Um, The upside-down world is devouring the world of life and health. Um, And it's gaining ground. And if you watch the film, it's quite clear the upside-down world is way more powerful than the world we live in, right? And absent some kind of intervention, Hawkins is doomed, right? Um, Now, why was Stranger Things so powerful? Why was Stranger Things so captivating? Why did it grab our attention, this silly show about a shadow monster in the upside-down world? Um, Was it just the 80s pop culture references and the Atlanta Nuggets that we all love, especially, um, and Winona Ryder's masterclass of acting. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Winona Ryder will feature again in the sermon, don't worry. Um, perhaps it was those things. Those things certainly help. But could it be that it, our culture increasingly actually believes this is how the world really is? That we're not just believing it, we recognize that there really is an unseen realm of death and decay, and it's reaching into our world of life and health, and it's causing destruction, right? If that's the case, and I think it is the case, Mark would say, I told you so. 
Because that worldview is kind of the same worldview that we see depicted in the Gospel of Mark. Um, now, some of you are thinking that's kind of ridiculous. If you're talking about the reality of darkness, why'd you start with stranger things? Um, let me tell you another story that'll hopefully kind of bring this point home a little bit. So shortly after World War II and the full revelation of the horrors of the Holocaust, um, there's a German theologian, Emil Brunner, lecturing at an American college, and he referred several times to the devil. And in the question period afterwards, a student politely, but with a slight touch of Ivy League condescension, uh, asked Bruna why he had used such outmoded, superstitious, unscientific language. And Bruna's response was this, I've referred to the devil for two reasons. First, I find he uh, plays an important role in scripture. And second, because I have seen him. In the words of Jacob Dylan, it's hard to admit, but it's easy to tell. Evil is alive and well. So perhaps some of us still, we have our heads kind of buried in the sand, but let me tell you who doesn't have their heads buried in the sand about this. Uh, your kids, the younger generation. Let me read you, this is a long quote, but hang with me. This is Reverend Dr. Tom Long, a minister and seminary professor. Not long ago, I was having a talk with a friend who serves as teacher for the senior high class at his church. He revealed to me that the most effective Bible study he ever did with the group was on the Gospel of Mark. I consider this an interesting and unexpected remark. I could imagine adolescents rallying around the mystical sayings of John or the inclusiveness of the Gospel of Luke. But Mark? When I pressed him, he said this. It's the apocalyptic stuff in Mark. My kids know that life's a pitched battle. It's no longer the old questions we talked about in my day, Christian dating or inductive Bible study methods or how to have a positive disposition or something like that. Now it's powers, principalities, the sheer threat of evil, the stark perils of life. My kids know immediately what Mark is talking about. Dr. Long continues, with our children passing through metal detectors at school and genocide now the preferred method of modern warfare worldwide and our proud ocean liner economy beginning to shiver and groan as if something terrible has been struck somewhere deep in the belly of the cold dark sea, even as the partying continues in first class, many of us know in our hearts the real issue is not how to manage stress or how to acquire the seven habits of highly effective leaders, but how to fend off the fearful powers and principalities all around us. For Mark, the human prospect is still going. Long quote. Hang with me. <laughs> I had to include it all. It's the gold of the sermon right here. For Mark, the human prospect is literally running out of time. It's late in the game, and the home team is hopelessly behind. The forces of evil, of the demonic, of disease, of sin, of arrogance, greed, self-serving power, indeed everything toxic that eats away at human life and hope are having their way. And so the Jesus of Mark doesn't come to give us wise advice to make us happy, as if we could or would follow such advice if only it were offered to us. We do not need another pep talk. We do not need another affirmation mantra. We don't need another poster on the wall of an eagle and some motto like your attitude determines your altitude. <laughs> what we need is a savior. The strong agent of God. One more powerful than you or I. So Jesus comes as liberator to storm the prison walls of hell, to break us loose from the shackles that bind us, to set us free, and to be our rescue. This is the worldview. This is the basic premise of the Gospel of Mark. Mark's telling us that Jesus comes uh, to a creation that's in the grips of the big four, uh, depravity, disease, demons, and death. 
And because of his great love for what he created, Jesus gets to work. But this kind of moves us to this second point, this weight of evil question. And it brings us, I think, to a kind of contemporary concern or objection about what we read, this healing story uh, in Mark 1. And I don't think our objection anymore, at least, is that we don't believe in evil anymore. Our objection now, I think, is different. And it's almost the opposite. In Mark 1, where Jesus heals Simon's mother-in-law and drives away the demons, when we read that story, I think what stands out to us is that evil doesn't look like it's got any weight to it. Jesus just kind of snaps his fingers and out fly the demons, snaps his fingers and up rises the sick. But we know the reality of evil. I know you do. And you know that it has weight. It has substance. Evil feels too powerful. The suffering in this world feels unredeemable. Like it puts us beyond the reach of rescue. The darkness has too much weight to it for the easy miracles of Mark 1. Eleanor Stump, a Christian philosopher, wrote this um, brilliant, it's an easy to find PDF online. I commend it to you. It's called The Mirror of Evil. And in it, she opens her morning newspaper and finds eight horrific examples of evil, just dreadful human suffering. And I'm going to spare you those details. I thought about including them, but I'm going to spare you the details. But at the end of that section, she writes this. I could go on. Racism, assault, murder, greed, exploitation, war. But this is enough. You can find other examples just like them in your newspaper, in your neighborhood. There is no time. There is no part of the globe free from the darkness. The crust of the earth is soaked with the tears of the suffering. This evil is a mirror for us. It shows us our world. It shows us ourselves. And we know that's true, don't we? The crust of the earth is soaked with the tears of the suffering. I feel it every time I open my phone, I end up, like if I open my news app, I'm like doom scrolling the world's tragedies. Like so much of my day is filled with the tragedies of the world. And they're true stories, The answer is not just to turn your phone off. Like, you might need to do that for your mental health. I do that all the time, right? But that doesn't do anything about the darkness that's out there. That doesn't do anything about the real human suffering that's on the end of that news story. For me, given my work, it's the stories and experiences of refugees where I feel this most acutely. It's like what happened in Sierra Leone in the 90s, people I work with. And I hear stories about, like, horrific mutilations, Sexual assault as a weapon of war, torture. It's the stories um, of what's happening in Sudan right now. The fighting in Khartoum and Darfur is spilling out through the whole country. There's stories of mass killings, ethnic cleansing, all in a country where measles and cholera are already outbreaking. I mean, it's unthinkable to look into the mirror of evil like this. The crust of the earth is soaked with the tears of the suffering. And I've sat in coffee shops with many of you. I've been in community groups with many of you. And I've heard these objections, and they, I think they sound something like this. So what? So what if Jesus raised up one woman with a fever one time? So what if one town's demoniacs got healed two millennia ago? My daughter's still addicted to hard drugs. My mother still died from lung cancer. My brother and I are still estranged. The demons of racism, militarism, greed still win the day. The genocides in Germany, Rwanda, Myanmar, Bosnia all happened. There's still Israeli children kept as hostages in tunnels in Gaza and Palestinian children buried alive in rubble. 
The environmental destruction we are headed towards feels almost inevitable. And whatever evil keeps me almost constantly impatient with my kids, constantly resentful of my spouse, constantly in anxiety and depression, seems to win the day every day. Hasn't taken a day off in years. Maybe Jesus did some jujitsu on evil in year one CE, but evil is surely winning now. Can you feel the weight of that objection? Maybe you've been there. Too much evil has happened. Too much innocent suffering. Too many people who begged for a miracle didn't get it. The abyss of despair has swallowed too many lives. And Mark 1's easy miracles are too trite. It disrespects the experiences of those who have really suffered. If you've been there, if you've started to pull on the thread until you see the size of the cloth, I want to honor that. I want to honor that. I hope I've said it just now as good as you could have said it yourself. Um, But I also want to challenge you to continue to think with me on it for a moment longer and ask you not to dispense with the gospel of Mark or this Jesus just yet. And here's why. Because the gospel of Mark was written to people who suffered. The gospel of Mark was written to people who knew the weight of evil more than you or I did. And I I can't get into the details due to time about the reign of Emperor Nero and the Roman Jewish war that the earliest readers of the gospel of Mark were living under. But I can assure you that they suffered. They knew wartime vulnerability. They knew death and despair. They knew a brutal siege, the kind of violent evil that only an empire drunk on its own idolatrous power can deal out. And the earliest readers of this gospel held on to this text, not only as scripture, but as gospel, as good news. So you have to ask yourself, why? People who know that evil has teeth would not receive a message as good news if that message did not also know that evil has teeth. So why? If Mark 1 is all we had, I don't, I don't know if anyone would be a Christian. No one would have held on to this text. But we don't just have Mark 1. We have a whole gospel. And it's our fault if we don't read it like you would read every other piece of literature you've ever read from start to finish. Mark 1 is just the first battle in what promises to be a knockdown, drag-out fight between Jesus and evil that will end up costing Jesus everything. And that brings us to this rescue of God. We've acknowledged the reality of the darkness. We've tried to feel our way into the place where we feel the weight of evil. And now I want to ask us this question. What does the gospel teach us about the rescue of God at the cross? So as we keep reading from Mark 1, in Mark 8, the gospel shifts. There's this unusual healing story in Bethsaida, and it's this narrative hinge. Up until Mark 8, the focus is on Jesus' miraculous ministry of miracles and power. But after Mark 8, the second half of the gospel depicts Jesus' suffering destiny and the cross in solidarity with all those who suffer. The story shifts from Jesus' stories of ministries of miracles, and it moves us towards the cross. And do you know what happens at the cross in the gospel of Mark? Darkness falls. Darkness falls. Let me read you words from New Testament scholar Joel Marcus. In the Gospel of Luke, he begins by contrasting the Gospel of Luke with the Gospel of Mark. In the Gospel of Luke, the atmosphere surrounding Jesus' death is serene and triumphant. Jesus graciously forgives his crucifiers, sovereignly promises the repentant criminal a place in paradise, and hands back his life breath to the Heavenly Father. In Mark, the atmosphere is anything but serene. 
Jesus cries out in a loud voice, and instead of uttering words of reconciliation and faith, he shouts into the engulfing darkness these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These words, needless to say, have caused problems for Christian theologians from the beginning of the church. It's not surprising, therefore, that there have been numerous attempts to alter the cry of dereliction or to explain it away. These, however, are desperate maneuvers. We must deal with Mark's text as it stands. Indeed, the true meaning of Jesus' last cry in Mark may be not better than it appears to be, but worse. At his death, Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Previously in the gospel, the only beings who have cried out with a loud voice are the demons and the demon-possessed. The implication, therefore, may be that Jesus' last cry is demonic. So fully has he entered into the human condition that he even shares the lostness of human beings who feel themselves cut off from God and in the grip of inimical anti-God forces. Have you ever been there? Have you been there in the grip of inimical anti-God forces? Have you ever felt forsaken or cut off from God? Jesus has been there too. Do you remember um, Winona Ryder's character? There we go, she came back. (laughs) Joyce Byers, Will's mom. Uh, Think about her for a moment. Remember the times when she realizes that Will is in trouble? that he's caught in the grips of something much, much bigger than him. And she knows it's much, much bigger than her. But come hell or high water, she's going to get to her little boy. Even if she has to march into the upside down world, she's coming for her child. That's how Jesus Christ comes to you. That level of grit, that level of determination, that level of whatever it costs me, I'm coming Since we share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partakes of flesh and blood. Since we know death and evil, he has tasted the same, that through his death he might destroy the power of death and free all of us who through fear of death were made slaves to evil. You will be freed. This is how close Christ comes, scandalously close, that at the lowest hell we face, Jesus is there. The more forsaken and caught by real evil we find ourselves, the closer Christ is coming. When the full weight of evil threatens to crush us, Jesus has been there waiting for us. That's the meaning of the cross. I recently read this book. um, It's called How to Stay Married, the Most Insane Love Story Ever Told. Has anybody read this? Any hands? There's only two in the first. There's two or three. Good. Um, It sounds kind of like a marriage self-help book. It's not exactly. It's a a narrative account of a man who stays married to his wife after she has been unfaithful to him multiple times. Um, And it's actually, the writer's a genius. It's actually quite hilarious and poignant and honest. Um, But there's this section that stood out to me that I want to share with you. Um, After his wife has has left um, him and their children twice for the same man, he finally has had enough. And he calls her to confirm the address where the divorce papers will be served. And they end up talking for some time. And finally, he just asks her, what are you doing? What are you doing? And he said, God stopped him from saying any more, and he just waited. He waited. And finally, she said, whispering into the phone, everything is so dark. I can't control it. And this is what he writes about that moment. She began to weep. 
her voice deepened, coarse, ground into dust. She began to howl with the truest, saddest pain I've ever heard through a phone. If you've ever heard someone cry out from the darkness, from the absolute terror of hell, this was it. As though I stood at the gates of a city and could hear her being slaughtered by a beast just beyond the edge of darkness. More silence, frightening silence, helpless, weak, dying, trapped, prey to be devoured. I can't stay here. Her words were urgent, grasping, gasping, desperate. You have to come now. Hurry. Listen, friends, as we turn the page from Epiphany to Lent, in Lent, the church looks out at the world and at you and asks, what are you doing? What are you doing? And then just waits in silence on the other end of the phone until we begin to howl and we admit everything is so dark, I can't control it. And until we cry out to Jesus Christ, you have to come now. Hurry. Let's pray together. Light of the world, you step down into darkness, our darkness. In your cross, O oh Jesus, you taste what it's like to feel yourself cut off from God in the grip of deep evil. And in so doing, you spring a trap for that evil, unmasking for us the horrors of our injustice, the reality of our evil, what happens when we choose our own path. And then you rise to defeat evil, to give to us a promise of your commitment to this world you love. Show us your rescue. In Mark 1, we see your intent for the world, your goals, your character, that of healing and liberation. As we prepare to come to this table, will you actualize that in our hearts and our lives now? Holy Spirit, we ask you to apply this gospel of the cross of Jesus Christ to our hearts and lives. Heal us and set us free, we pray. In Jesus' strong name, amen. If you were with us last week um, in Jenny's sermon, she led us through a Kenyan bless, a benediction, um, and we're going to continue to do that practice together, which is a way for us to um, send the things that are the, those evil principalities that David was talking about this morning. We get to send them to the cross. And so as we go through each line of this, we'll say all our problems, and then we'll all together say we send them to the cross, and we'll push them off. And then in the last part, we'll say all our hopes and we raise our hands to heaven and we say we set them on risen Christ. So let's do that together as we get ready to go. All our problems we send to the cross of Christ. All our difficulties we send to the cross of Christ. All the devil's works we send to the cross of Christ. All our hopes we set on the risen Christ. Amen. Amen.